0: Welcome to Football is for Footballers, the podcast that brings you the detailed perceptions into the world of women's football. Hey everyone and welcome back to the fourth episode in our journey into women's football. In the last couple of episodes we have taken a closer look at youth development both at a national and grassroots level. And that was to get a better understanding of the current environment young girls experience on a daily basis in football. It is therefore only natural we grab an insight into the current working conditions women experience in the game, this time on a professional level. One of the largest platforms to get that true understanding of this sort of professional environment is the FIFA Pro Women's Global Report, which was released in 2017. FIFA Pro a world representative organisation for all professional football players, sent out a survey to understand the true working conditions players are exposed to within the sport, with 3,600 anonymously opening up to give their personal account of the most problematic areas at the highest level. The results, as we all expected, were considerably alarming and cast a major spotlight on the collective accounts of players not just the nonchalant disregard for a single player and the obstacles they are subjected to. It is important here to make clear that I do understand that the report was from two years ago, but it is in fact the latest report available. I know that in the time being, improvements have been made to particular areas we will cover within the episode, but when looking at the bigger picture, there still remains major concerns across a number of these areas that are still in serious need of immediate attention. Today, therefore, we will give a brief account of the 11 top findings within the report, highlighting to you the alarming problems female football players were suffering at even the most professional level of the game less than two years ago, and the environment all young players aim for without actually knowing the conditions they will be exposed to. Number one in the top findings, a denial of professional status. It has already been one of the most talked-about weaknesses in the women's game, and the survey didn't really argue. There is a worrying difference of perspective between how female players see their own professional status and how other football stakeholders, and that's including clubs and federations, see them. As the FIFA Pro report states, these discrepancies say a lot about the lack of standardisation across the women's professional game. From a player's perspective, I can see exactly what they are talking about. How worrying is it that as a player, when you don't know if you hold a professional, semi professional, or even amateur status? How can you feel comfortable in the sport if you don't know if you meet the professional criteria for a written contract, or even if you should be paid more than you pay on your own expenses, simply based on your status? To back up that point, the FIFA Pro results show that only 24.1% of players believe they were of professional status. But by FIFA regulations, 18% met that criteria, meaning 6%, or 216 players, however you want to look at it, have completely different understandings of their roles to the international rules. How frightening is that? Number two, leaving the game early. We've already discussed on previous episodes the danger age group of 15 to 16, especially for youth players when they want to leave the game but there is a similar procession of leavers from the sport at the professional level too. Due to awful financial support and salaries, as well as the complete disregard for support to those looking to have children, women are quitting the game so early that they aren't even reaching their peak age levels. Considering the exorbitant amount of money, fame and help that there is for males in football, you can't really throw them out of the game soon enough anymore. Whilst when you look on the other hand, an astonishing 90% of the women gave at least one genuine reason why they would consider leaving the sport earlier than expected. This should not be the case. No player should ever be able to find a reason to leave sports, period. And of all the reasons for leaving, the most frequent answer was to start a family, and that occurred in 47% of the cases, and this was closely followed by a lack of financial support within football at 46%. Given that these two go hand-in-hand and the fact that women cannot continue to play the sport whilst having a baby, these statistics outline the dependency females have on an income that can provide for their future, which football is not currently delivering. Similarly, given that 70% of the players who partook in the survey were 23 years old or younger, it emphasises that players saw no future that could combine this home life with for working life, meaning that many chose new career paths. Decided to study or to prioritise their second job as it was financially supporting them alongside football. And hearing, reading, and even learning about all of this, it becomes incredibly clear and understandable why women leave the game early, especially when these things go unheard of in the media. Number three, no pay, low pay, or even late pay. Talking about the economic side of the game, If there aren't considerable wages for all professional players, how can anyone expect to survive in a sport at the highest level? Can you believe that just under 50% of players that took the survey are not paid by their club? And of those that get paid, a large percentage of the money is provided by their domestic clubs, whilst less than a quarter receive alternative funding from either their national team or from sponsors. Even for those that do receive wages, the numbers are not sparkling. In terms of amount, 60% of the pay players receive between $1 and $600 per month after tax, 30% between $600 to $2,000, and only 1% earn over $8,000. Just putting this into perspective, in 2017, the same year, the BBC released a report to say that the average wage in the Premier League was around $55,000 per week. Doesn't that just single-handedly outline the gulf of disparity in pay? To add the icing on top of this already poorly constructed cake, 37% of players had reported late payments, with 9% of those having to wait up to 3 months for their overdue salary. Now I'm not sure in many other frontline professions that companies could so easily get away with not paying their employees on time. Taking into account the legal implications of doing so would be severe for the employer and therefore it's not common. But when you add in the fact that many players don't have a contract, or do have one but it's vague to say the least, it becomes clearer that the lines become very blurred and difficult to argue against. Therefore, late payments can become a commonality. Number 4. Written contracts are all too rare. Another clearly lacking area which we touched upon briefly was the lack of stability women feel in the professional game due to an absence of clarity in their contracts or no contract altogether. In any profession, a contract is vital to understanding your role and responsibilities towards the company, the company that you are going to represent, as much as knowing the support and the clearly laid out labor conditions provided to you whilst working under them. Overall, only 53% reported that they have a contract with their club, and then subsequently 28% of those with professional statuses claiming to not have one at all. And when you just look at those two figures, this is significantly lower than the figure of 92% for the men. Despite the alarmingly low number, what is more frightening is that 15% of players just have no clue what sort of contract they have with their club. How can a player feel employment protection and a guarantee of the best working conditions if they have no clue what type of contract they have? To make matters even worse is the length of contract for players. On average, they are less than two years long and decreasing in the length of age the player is after 18. Having a contract that lasts just a bit longer than the season you were in makes it incredibly difficult for players to feel security in their job and they're constantly looking over their shoulder for where they are going to be playing the following year, whilst older players are effectively being pushed away from the football the older they get. This instinctively makes each performance a CV demonstration. Each opportunity counts. If you have a very good game and other clubs might take interest in you, but one horror show and suddenly others might close the door on you and your own club might cut ties, how mentally draining must that be? Number 5. National Pride can't pay the bills.
1: Results of the survey show that playing for your
0: country actually costs you money. The player! given that 35% of players are not paid to play for their national team. An added 68% said that the compensation they received was nowhere near good enough, with almost half of the players receiving just nowhere near enough to even cover the expenses. As has also been the problems with payments in the women's game, 39% of players reported delays in their payments, with nearly 150 players saying it took over a year to receive any form of compensation. No wonder players can't rely on football being their primary source of income and provide that financial stability to their life. In some countries, there have been significant strides made, such as Australia, the US, Norway and Sweden. Whether it has been these attempts to bring greater equilibrium between the pay for the genders, or even increased financial support to try and bridge the gap between the men's and women's teams. But this is a minority of countries that are aiming to make changes to the system with many still much further behind in simply appreciating women's football at a national level, let alone contributing funding towards the players. Number 6. Prize money. Fair share? At the time of the Pro report, prize money for women's football was pretty much non-existent. Such is the disparity in the prize money between men's and women's football that only 2.5% of the players that took the survey said they were satisfied with the overall winnings, To put that into context for you, 90 of the 3,600 were happy, and given the strong nucleus of professional players that took the survey, it is fair to assume that those that were satisfied were maybe the ones receiving the most benefits. Overall, 65% of players said they were dissatisfied. The problem with it is not only did the federations receive such a small amount for progressing further or even winning major competitions, but the trickle-down effect to the players does not once again give any financial profit to individuals, especially for the expenses and commitment to the competitions they have to make. On top of that, can you imagine participating in the biggest football competition, the World Cup in 2015, and receiving $2 million like the US did for claiming the trophy? And in comparison to the $35 million won by the winning German national team, only one year before in Brazil. And yes, I know there have been improvements to the Women's World Cup prize money recently. But still, have you noticed that dissimilarity between the men's and women's game? The money is still massive! Number 7. Club versus Country Around a third of players face the constant tug-of-war between club and country, especially when it comes to the domestic and international fixture lists. Due to a lack of stable National League competitions, and then the desire for national sides to increase the number of fixtures outside the FIFA calendar, clubs are surprisingly well within their rights to not release their players for these games. This ultimately forces the players to choose for themselves where their priorities lie. This is made much more difficult when considering that, as we said previously, over 75% of wages are paid to players by their domestic club. Overall. 30% of players had either personally experienced or knew of a teammate who had internally struggled with the difficult decision between continuing to play for their club or joining up with their national side. Quite honestly, no player should ever have to decide between the two. It is a privilege and an honour to be called up to your country, one of the greatest achievements there is for any athlete in sport. And a club should not only understand that, but not put such a consequential decision on the shoulders of the player. It is already an unstable working environment. How can a player therefore make a balanced decision given the fact they might lose funding or even their contractual status at the end of the year, on the basis of wanting to represent their country? Number 8. Discrimination and Harassment It comes as no surprise that one of the biggest concerns within professional women's football is the extreme levels of discrimination and harassment that is experienced on a regular basis. It is also important to point out that whilst the results are hugely disturbing, that many in abuse cases don't come forward or are open about their experiences, so there is most likely a lot more instances that were seen than in the survey. It is evidently clear that there is discrimination for both sexes, but the biggest disparity between the two is it the gender-based discrimination VPro found that in particular cases, 70% of the players had experienced gender discrimination by fans on match days, whilst 53% had also experienced similar abuse just in their everyday life. And to add to that, 11.9% experienced gender discrimination by club management and 5.5% by coaching staff. It is difficult enough to have to mentally prepare for episodes of abuse on the pitch or even outside of the stadiums. But then to experience it by your own bosses? It's a step too far for many to be able to handle. And digging deeper still, the report worryingly found out that 63.1% of players experienced homophobia by fans on match days, and nearly 16% by coaching staff again. 72% had experienced racism by fans on match day. And get this 60% experienced it from coaching staff. I can't believe this pattern that is occurring. Finally, 30% of players experienced sexual harassment by fans at matches, whilst 22% and 40% of players experienced it by either club management or coaching staff. So you are telling me that people that are meant to protect you in the workplace, be role models, and handle themselves in the most professional regard, are causing just as much, if not more, problems for players than those that come to watch the games? That is disgusting! And whilst the percentages might be low of those experiencing these three different horrors, around 5% or 180 players, they are still subjected to the horrendous acts by not only those that they have to play in front of, but also those they have to work for behind closed doors. Number 9.
1: Who cares? Little support for female players who want children.
0: 47%. Nearly half of all participants said they would leave the game early to start a family. The fact that players would so readily make a decision to drop out of the sport amplifies the need for clubs and federations to provide support for female players through parental policies and childcare provisions. 61% of players who have children reported to have received no childcare support, whilst only 3% of clubs provide that necessary aid. Having a family is a massive part of life, and for women especially. Knowing that they receive support from the workplace provides job security and stability during the pregnancy and in the immediate future once the baby is born. To know you're working in an environment that demands so much continuous physical strain on the body, and that you will not receive any form of support, psychologically forces you to decide. And this is to a much stronger degree than club versus country on a continuation with professional football, or becoming a mother.
1: A decision that once again should not be forced upon someone.
0: Number 10. Match-fixing hits the women's game. Given the previous comments on a lack of awareness, media coverage, and overall support that we addressed in episode 1, it might come as a surprise to hear that there actually is match-fixing within women's football. And the fear is it might continue to grow. In fact, 5% of players replied that they had been approached, stating that given the lack of payments or these delayed fees, the likelihood of people coming to you and to try and fix a match becomes much more frequent. The numbers aren't high, so there's no need to start worrying about the outcome of results in women's domestic football. But the fact is that the game is continuing to grow, and that should be a good indicator that the sport needs to take the same precautions the men's game has towards match fixing. To prevent it from becoming a problem in the future. Number 11, the women's game can teach us about dual careers. I think it's good that we finished with this focus point, because it's pretty much non existent to many who follow professional athletes across many sports. Around 33% of women, or around a third, stated that they have another job alongside their playing career, with 50% of players saying that they were studying in parallel to football too. The initial thought many will have is yes, I completely get that. There isn't much money in women's football, so it's good to prepare for the future or seeing if there is more financially supportive career path. And I agree. The fact that they can also attribute some of the skills in the other workplace to football and manage to have a separate life outside of this intense bubble that professional sport can be, that's another positive to have to this intense combination. For those that combine work with playing, 64% of professionals were working on another job unrelated to football with a mean number of 20 hours a week. But for many, there were reports of them working up to 56 hours a week in addition to training and matches. So just take this moment. Try thinking about working 56 hours a week, which I'm sure many of you do. Then adding on top of that all the commitment you have to football and then wanting a family. It's virtually impossible to find the time for everything, right? And on the other side of the coin, we have around 50% of the players studying alongside playing. 23% of those were under 18, so it's not really surprising that they were still involved in some sort of education. But those above the age were dedicating 27 hours of study time to their respective courses in addition to their playing career as well. Much like working, the leading worry is the lack of free time and balancing the two with one another. Working pays the bills and brings the financial stability so dearly needed, while studying provides a future career path. But both have to fit within the time schedule of their main career. On top of that, no player should feel insecure in any aspect within football. The fact they need to study in case things go badly or provide financial stability is worrying. But sadly, it is the way it is at this time of the report. Now breathe. The statistics are done, the facts and figures are no more, but the 11 points should still be fresh in everybody's minds. Overall, this brief compilation of the biggest problematic areas in professional women's football raise light to new fears, support obstacles we already knew that were there, and magnify issues that have been brushed under the carpet from behind closed doors. It is important to once again remind you that it's never easy to talk about the incredibly difficult environment you suffer in on a daily basis. So regardless of how anonymous this survey is, some of these might not show the true positive or negative gravity of the situation. But as you have heard, the results are pretty damning. The money is not there to support the players. The care and backing in general, whether it's if you want to start a family, need financial help for expenses, or acceptance of the fact that playing for your country shouldn't be detrimental to your club or playing career, is seriously missing. On top of that, Women experience gender-based discrimination from absolutely everyone, including those working at the club, which all culminates into another huge strain for an individual without any visible job security. In 2017, FIFPRO managed to expertly paint a picture of the difficulty these professional players experience at the top level. And more importantly demonstrated that the rich and carefree lifestyles that male players involuntarily have plastered over the media are the exact opposite for female footballers. Just because you have struggled and fought to make it to the top of the game throughout the youth age groups doesn't mean that there aren't separate barriers to overcome at the pinnacle. Yes, as we've said, things have changed in the time being, but how much can really have changed from 2017 until now? In the next episode, we will check the recommendations FIFA Pro made and what areas have been improved upon in the short time span in between. We can find case examples of developments. And off the back of the findings of the FIFA Pro report, we can have a look to see whether it's actually worth the developments that have been made so far. But for now, let this all sink in and realise the battle is always on for female footballers, regardless of age, status, or ability within the sport.